You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You can be seated. Good morning again. My name is Clint. I want to welcome each and every one of you here. So glad you've joined us. We're going to continue our series in the book of Romans. We've called this series, The Righteousness of God. And this morning, we're going to look at the passage that gives us the namesake for our sermon title. It's it's where Paul is going to talk about the righteousness of God. And these are huge verses in our Bibles. This is a big day. Famous pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones called these verses the greatest words in all of the Bible. John Piper calls it the most important paragraph in the Bible. Martin Luther said, in these verses are the chief point in the very central place of the whole Bible, right here in these verses. So why are these verses so important? What's the big deal, we may say? Because Paul is going to address the fundamental struggle in each and every one of our lives. The struggle we all face. Each and every one of us, everyone is struggling for righteousness. That famous movie, Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrams, he's he's not the the main guy, but he's one of the other runners, and there's a scene where he's getting ready to run in the Olympics, the biggest race of his life, the 1924 Olympics. He's running running in the 100-meter dash, and he's getting warmed up, ready for the race, and he's filled with fear. He's filled with anxiety. It's a heavy moment because all of a sudden he realized, wait, my whole life has been leading up to this. I've worked my whole life for what is about to happen. No pressure, right? And so all of a sudden this moment he turns up and he looks to his friend, the main character, Eric Liddell, and he says this, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again and I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with only 10 seconds to justify my existence. But will I? It's a haunting question, isn't it? 10 seconds to justify my existence. But will I? Can I do it? You know what Harold is talking about there? He's talking about righteousness. Now, not in a religious way, the way that maybe sometimes we think of it, but in a way that we can all understand, in a place that we have all been. You can think of righteousness as just simply meeting a standard. Maybe it's a religious standard. Maybe it's a social standard. Maybe it's a moral standard. Maybe it's an Olympic standard, whatever it is. We all have those moments where we ask, wait a minute, will I measure up? Will I prove myself? Do I have what it takes? Do I belong here? You know what's interesting? The more we understand how, how we as people work, the more we realize this is built into our heart. It's hardwired into our brains. Even out in the secular culture, they're talking about this. There's a guy named Jonathan Haidt who wrote a book called The Righteous Mind several years ago. He's a secular psychologist. And in this book, he argues the struggle for righteousness, it's behind our politics, it's behind our social groups, it's behind our families, it's behind any so-called tribe that we join. He says the way it works is this. Each group has its own set of moral standards. And we all, individually, each and every one of us, strive to belong. How do we strive to belong? By proving that we measure up to those moral standards, and it's the motivating force of our lives. 
So Harold Abrams, that day he was struggling for Olympic righteousness. Many of you maybe this morning are struggling for mother or father righteousness, career righteousness, social righteousness, food, body righteousness, political righteousness, cause righteousness. Here's what Paul's going to tell us this morning. This is amazing. He's going to say, you know what? You can have something even better. You can have God's righteousness. The righteousness of God can be yours. So let's do this. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 3. Romans 3, we're going to start in verse 21. And let's hear what Paul has to say about the righteousness of God. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, let's pause there. Man, Paul's starting off in a really good sense, and that's great. He, what he's starting off, he's starting off explaining to us, I'm going to tell you how you can get your hands on this righteousness. And that's great news, because it's been bad news so far. But he starts with a contrast. But now, I've heard this called Paul's big but. But now, and that's good news. We're ready for one. Y'all, it's been the September of sin. Every Sunday, September, through the first three and a half chapters of Romans, all he's talked about is our sin. It's like we are righteousness starved. There doesn't seem to be any righteousness anywhere. Even the people that we thought were really religious, that God really liked, surely they have some righteousness. Paul has said, no one is righteous now. But now, verse 21, the righteousness of God, he says, has been manifested. That word mean, means it has appeared, it has shown up in time, in history. It is solid, it is concrete. So he's not talking about just some abstract or in theory righteousness, some pretend righteousness. This isn't monopoly money, right? This is real hard cash. Take it to the bank. This is real righteousness. It's appeared. It's manifested. And just like that, two and a half chapters of bad news is erased. And just like that, your struggle for righteousness is over. How'd that be, okay? Great. This righteousness of God, it's here. It's manifested. It's real. How do I get my hands on it? Two things Paul's going to tell us here in this passage. The first thing you need to know, if you're going to get this, your hands on this righteousness, is you can't get righteousness. Wait a minute. I thought you said I was gonna, we were going to find out how I could get it. What's going on? I'm getting a double message. Just hang on me here. Hang with me. This is the first thing Paul says you need to know. You can't get it. Because he says it comes apart from the law. Now, almost surely they understood that as the religious law, all the things they did and worked really hard at to, to get God's favor and to actually be righteous, he says it's not going to come that way. When you think law, you could just think anything you can do. Anything. So think of something you could do. Pray, tithe, uh, have two quiet times a week, let your mother-in-law come live with you, whatever it is. That will never get you God's righteousness. It won't happen. It's what we call an alien righteousness. It comes from somewhere else. It does not come from me. And y'all, this is so important, and it is so hard for us to understand. It is so hard for us to live by, isn't it? Because what Paul has said here, he has just disagreed with every other religion and world philosophy. He has just disagreed with how 99.99% of people believe, and probably 100% of us try to live. Listen, nothing 
nothing makes more sense than surely I got to do something. Surely I got to do some stuff. And if I do good stuff, that's good. And if I do bad stuff, that's bad. Surely that's how it works, right? Makes perfect sense to us. Paul says no, and it's so important that we get it. He's going to loop back. He's going to revisit this in verse 27 through 31. He's going to say, this righteousness, because of how it comes, there's no room for boasting. Boasting, kick it to the curb. We can't do it. That word boasting, it's actually a a military term. And so the picture is a soldier charging into into battle full of gusto shouting, I'm bigger, I'm badder, I'm going to squish you like a bug, right? You can picture Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 when he's out there taunting the Israelite army, saying, I'm nine feet tall, I've got this huge sword I've never lost in battle, I'm going to crush you all. That's that picture of boasting. So what do you boast in? You know what you boast in? You, what you boast in is what gives you confidence to go out and face the day. It's that thing that you, you point to and you say, you know what? I can beat whatever comes. I have what it takes. I can stand against whatever comes against me today because of, because of this. It's that first thing you reach to when, when, you ask, when you ask like Harold Abrams, you know, 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence, but will I? What's the very next thing you reach for in those moments? And women, let me tell you, whatever it is, it will never get you God's life whatever it is. We really believe that. It's hard. And if you're like me, you believe it for a while, and then you stop believing it, and you got to go back to believing it, right? A guy named David Kinneman wrote a book called Unchristian a few years back, and he did his really some groundbreaking research on what us, people in the church, believers, what, we actually, what it is we actually believe and live our lives by. I'm quoting here. He said, More than four out of every five agree that the Christian life is well described as trying hard to do what God God commands. So 80% of us say, hey, what is a Christian life? We say, you know what? It's trying really, really hard to measure up, to do what God commands. Keeps going. Two-thirds of churchgoers said, rigid rules and strict standards are an important part of the life and teaching of my church. Three out of every five churchgoers in America feel that they do not measure up to God's standards. And one quarter admitted that they serve God out of a sense of guilt and obligation rather than joy and gratitude. What are we saying there? It's all about my works. God's standards are up here, and it's all about whether I measure up or not. But then it's interesting. He goes on to say how these views affect how we see outsiders, how we see non-believers. He says, Christians believe the primary reason outsiders have rejected Christ is that they cannot handle the rigorous standards of following Christ. There's a nuance here that allows Christians to feel like they're better than other people, more capable of being holy and sinless. We rationalize that outsiders don't want to become Christ followers because they can't really cut it. Why am I in here and they're out there? Because I can cut it, and they can't. I mean, when Paul is telling you this morning, you can't cut it either. You can't get God's righteousness. But there's still a way you can measure up to his standards. This is the second thing he wants us to know, okay? You can't get God's righteousness, but you know what? You can receive God's righteousness. 
He says in verse 22, this righteousness comes to us, you get your hands on it, through faith. You have faith. Now, we got to be real careful here because it can sound like I just said, there's nothing you can do, but here's one thing you can do, right? And this is something we are really good at in the church so often is saying, you know what? I can't be saved by work, but I'm going to make my faith into a work. You know, sometimes we think of faith, kind of ask, think about what, what faith is. Sometimes we think of it as a strong feeling, some kind of warm fuzzy about God. Sometimes we think of it as maybe intense attitude of surrender. Some, sometimes we think of it as just this level of certainty, uh, this level of confidence that has no doubt in it whatsoever. And so now my job as a believer, my job as a Christian is to maintain that confidence, maintain that feeling, maintain that attitude. And if I do that, God rewards me, right? But men and women, that that is not how the Bible talks about faith. That's not how the Scriptures describe faith. Faith is simply how a gift is received. That's all it is. It's simply coming to God with empty hands. Now, in our house, we have a cowbell, okay? It's not because we're Mississippi State fans or anything. It's the dinner bell. And so if you walked in my house and you grab that cowbell and you ring it, you're going to see kids run in. You don't know from which direction, but from any direction, kids are going to run in to the dining room and they're going to sit down at the table because that bell means it's time to eat, right? They're like Pavlov's dogs. We trained them. Now, let me ask you this. When one of my kids hears that bell, comes running in, sits down at the table, trusting that we are going to feed him, that it's dinner time, does his sitting down merit anything? Is that the way he earns his dinner? No, that is simply the way he receives the provision of his parents who love him. That's all it is. And that is faith. I love the way Ricky Garner, our Hope Campus pastor, put it. He said, listen, anytime you begin to measure or qualify your faith or you try to quantify it and and see if it's strong enough, listen, anytime you get in that area, you're making it a work. You're making it work, and it's time when you catch yourself doing that, it, trying to muster up more faith, trying to figure out if your faith is strong enough. Listen, it's time to hit the pause button. You're turning your faith into a work. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, one of the most famous preachers that ever lived, a British preacher, who, by the way, took 13 years to preach through the book of Romans. Uh, we are not going to take that long. He said this about this very verse. Describing the man of faith, he says, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself, no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And he rests on that alone. Faith, you know what faith is? It's self-forgetfulness. I'm not looking at what it was, what I am, what I hope to be. I'm not looking at me at all. Dallas Willard has another great picture of what faith is in the Bible. You know what Dallas Willard says faith is? says faith is one of these. It's just a white flag that we wave. Now, why does someone wave a white flag? Because they realize they do not have the resources to fight and win the battle. They have nothing to offer, and so all they can do is surrender. You know what else I love about this picture? 
if I'm waving the white flag, right, and I've lost, you know what else that means? It means someone else has won. Someone else has won the victory. And that's what Paul tells us next. He says, this righteousness of God that we have through faith, it is faith in Christ. Christ won. Christ is the victor. Christ is the one who accomplished it. You got to understand this. Your faith by itself doesn't accomplish anything. It's who your faith is in that accomplishes everything. If you're going to get your hands on this righteousness, Paul is saying you need to understand the object of your faith is what matters most, not the quality of your faith. It's what your faith is in. So let's imagine this. Let's imagine me and you, we're going to go swimming with sharks. I don't know why things have gone terribly wrong in the world, but me and you, we're going to go swimming with sharks. And so we go out there, we go on the boat, and man, they want to give us the best experience possible. So they, those sharks hadn't been fed in months, and they, man, they chum up the waters good. They work those sharks into a frenzy. And here the time comes, we've got our wetsuits on, and we're gonna, it's time to jump in you know, those little cages you've seen on the Discovery Channel. they got the little cage you get in so the sharks can't get to you. And it's time to jump in. I say, no, 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 no. I don't need no cage. No, I'm going in without the cage. You don't understand. I have amazing, otherworldly, underwater kung fu skills. That's what I got. Any shark that comes up to me, man, I, he will not be able to withstand my karate chops. He will r- swim away in fear. He'll tell the other sharks, don't go near that guy, right? And of course, they look at me like I'm crazy, and they try to talk me out of it. You know, think about your kids, uh, think about your wife, all this kind of thing. But I am undeterred. I have unshakable, Herculean faith in my underwater kung fu abilities, okay? Then there's you. You're terrified. You're shaking. You're trembling. And so they try to help you filter. They tell, they tell you all about the cage and how strong it is, and it's made of titanium, and it, it could get run over by a train and not have a scratch on it. And they, they tell you, hey, there's going to be a, an underwater expert in there with you that's going to take care of you, make sure you're okay. And they tell you about the statistics. Hey, it's actually, you're safer walking down the sidewalk than than being in one of these cages, and so you'll be totally fine. But still, you can't help it. You're scared. So the time comes to get in the water. You know, I dive in with gusto. I cannonball in uh, with nothing but my underwater kung fu. All you can do, all you can muster up is to just, just first get a toe in and then just kind of roll into the water and into that cage. That's all you can muster up. Let me ask you, Who's going to survive? You are, right? But wait, I had the strongest faith. I had more faith than anyone has ever had going swimming with sharks. And you were scared. It's the object of your faith that's most important. That's what matters. The object of my faith is what accomplishes the righteousness, not the strength of my faith. So who's the object of our faith? Jesus Christ. And the way he says it's not just him, it's Jesus Christ's own righteousness, his perfect, obedient life, his perfect, obedient death, the perfect righteousness that Jesus worked for, achieved, accomplished, obtained, his blameless, spotless righteousness is yours because of what he did. He accomplished it. You just receive it. That's what he's saying. Now, if you're sick and twisted like me, my mind immediately goes, okay, that's great. I know I get, okay, I can't earn it. Uh, I can't do it myself, but surely it's going to cost me something. 
I mean, do I have to sacrifice something? How much do I have to sacrifice? Tell me what, getting my hands on this righteousness, what is it going to cost me? Paul answers that next. We'll pick it back up in verse 22, the end of verse 22. He says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here's what Paul's going to answer that question with. First, he's going to say, Righteousness, you know what it costs you? It costs you nothing. Nothing. He shows this by telling us two universal truths. The first is a reminder of what he's been talking about the first two and a half chapters. He says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We've learned about that through our September of sin. Go back and listen if you want to find out just how unrighteous we really are. And it's really fascinating how he summarizes it here. He uses two different verb tenses. So when he says, all have sinned, that's what we call the global aorist. It includes the past, the present, and the future. And so what he's saying, it's almost like he's saying, here's a snapshot of your whole life, past, present, future. And it is a picture of you sinning in your past, in your present, in your future. He's saying we are completely, comprehensively broken. Then when he says all fall short, that fall is in the present tense. It's, it's present in the sense that it is continual. You are continually falling short of the glory of God. No one ever stops falling short. In this present, in all the presents, we're always falling short of His glory. The second universal truth He gives us is where that bad news actually becomes the best news. Because even though we've all sinned, universal truth number two, all can be justified. All of us. And what's interesting here, most of our English Bibles talk, say uh, justified there. It's actually the same word, righteousness, that he was using in verse 21. In Greek, they're the same word, justice and righteousness. So we're still talking about righteousness here. We translate it into two separate words because we don't have the perfect English word to translate what Paul is saying. Really what Paul is saying is you can be enrighteousified, enrighteousinated, you see? What he's done is, he's still talking about righteousness, but he's not talking about active voice, he's talking about passive voice. Okay, so let's go back to, I had to do this, elementary school grammar, okay? Something is an active voice, that's something I'm I'm doing. So I give, I'm doing the action. If something is in the passive voice, I'm receiving the action. I am given. So when he's talking about law, Paul's talking active voice, the things you are doing. When he talks about righteousness and how you can get it, it's passive voice. It's something you receive. You receive the righteousness. You are enrighteousinated. You are enrighteousified. That's not an English word, so we translate it justified. He says it, it comes as through grace as a gift, or, or your translation may say, freely by his grace. It's a double emphasis there, right? Because if it's by grace, then yes, it's a gift. All, all grace is a gift. All grace is free. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. So he, he, it's like he doubles down on this idea of this double emphasis. That it is, it's like he's saying, this righteousness, it's a gift gift. It's a double gift. That word uh, gift or freely, it means without a cause, without initiation, totally and wholly unwarranted. That's how gifts work, right? So what will it cost you? Nothing. It's free. It's a gift. That's what he's saying. But that doesn't mean it doesn't cost anything. 
while righteousness will cost you nothing. The second thing he tells us is righteousness cost him greatly. Take it back up in verse 25. It says, whom, he's talking about Jesus there, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he, so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He calls Jesus our propitiation. And this is a huge word. It goes back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So this idea of propitiation, there's really two sides to the coin. It really has two areas of meaning. And the first side of that coin is a cleansing. He wipes away our sins. Though your sins may be a scarlet, you'll be made white as snow. That we usually say, amen. That sounds amazing. That sounds awesome. The other side of the coin is usually a little less appealing. It means the turning away of wrath. So propitiation means that through Jesus, our sins were cleansed, and God's wrath turned away from us, the people who deserved it, and onto His Son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered what made Jesus sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, go read his words. He's distraught. He says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. What on earth can make the creator of the universe's soul so full of sorrow? Is he afraid of the Romans? Probably not. Maybe he's afraid of the pain, the nails and the beating and the crown of thorns. No doubt, none, none of that uh, is anything any of us would want to experience. But it, is that just a, that pain? Is that enough to make the Creator of the universe distraught, sweating drops of blood, sorrowful to the point of death? You know what's more? You, you look back in history. History is filled with martyrs who have endured crucifixion and even much worse, while singing hymns while making bold expressions of faith and assurance. So what are we going to take from that? That they were just braver than Jesus Christ is? No. See, I don't think it was the physical pain that caused Jesus to be overwhelmed with sorrow. Remember his very words. Remember his request. If there's any way, Father, let this cup pass from me. Well, what cup is Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus knew the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew that all throughout the Old Testament, God's wrath is pictured as a cup full of wine. You see this in Job, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, throughout the Psalms, even in Revelation. And the picture is always that every last drop of that wrath is going to be poured, is going to be emptied on everyone who isn't righteous, on everyone who doesn't measure this is what Jesus is afraid of in the garden. This is what his soul was tormented to face. You know what? He did it. He did it. And on that cross, it was as if he took that cup of God's wrath and he drank every last drop. And then he set the cup down and he declared, it is finished. He finished it all. So what your justification, what your unrighteousifying cost it's God's wrath fully poured out on Jesus Christ. That's why Paul closes. He says that 
because of this, God is both just and your justifier. So He gives you righteousness, but he didn't, he didn't turn away from justice. He didn't give up His justice. You know what He did? He turned it on Himself. That's what He did. So when that's been done, when it is finished, when it's all been accomplished by another, and it is a gift offered for you on the table, the only thing left to do is receive it, right? What could you possibly add to it? Back in 1949, in a place called Man Gulch Valley, Montana, a team of 15 smoke jumpers parachuted into a forest fire that had broken out. While they were there, they experienced every firefighter's worst nightmare, what's called a blow-up. Blow-up happens when a, a forest fire starts on the ground, maybe lightning, maybe some brush, something like that. And as it burns, as it intensifies, it, it grows from a ground fire to what they call a crown fire. It moves into the crowns of the trees and the tops of the trees and the branches and the canopy. And as it's spreading over the tops of those trees, and not just on the ground, as, it, as that's happening, they say it sounds like a freight train coming at you. Because what's happening is trees are catching on fire like matches, and all the air is being sucked out of the sky, and trees are even exploding, and the noise is deafening, it's thunderous. And as this is happening, as a fire crowns, it can actually shoot missiles of fire hundreds of yards away. And this is why it's so dangerous for firefighters. Firefighter can be standing facing the main fire, and missiles of fire are going behind them and around them, starting other fires, and they don't even know it. So now you have multiple fires, and conditions are ripe for a blow up. So, what happens is the air in between all these fires just gets hotter and hotter and hotter until it reaches an ignition point. And once the air has reached that ignition point, it only needs one more thing, one more ingredient, fresh oxygen. And so out of nowhere, with one change of the wind, fresh oxygen can blow into that area, and now you have a blow-up, and the air literally ignites. The air catches on fire, and the fire can spread hundreds of yards in seconds. So back in Man Gulch, the gulch sits between two ridges, two mountains, and the smoke jumpers parachuted along one of the ridges, and they began a two-and-a-half-mile hike down one of the mountains to the base of the main fire. While they're on their way, that fire crowned. It reaches the tops of the trees. And they didn't know it, but missiles of fire are going behind them and around them, starting other fires that they don't even know about. So they keep heading down until finally a man named Wagner Dodge, who was their captain. What a great name. Wagner dies. He realizes what's happening finally. And so he, he sees these fires starting beside them and, and around them, and he tells his guys, it is time to go. We have to get out of here. So they began a two-and-a-half-mile hike back up the mountain and out of the valley. They got about 400 yards from the main fire, and all of a sudden, the whole valley is shaken with an explosion. It was a blow-up. And so these firefighters, their faces must have turned sheep white as they turned around and saw what was coming at them. And so now they are no longer fighting fire. They are fleeing fire. They dropped their tools, their axes, their shovels, their backpacks, anything they could, and it is an all-out sprint to the top of that mountain. They say the air temperature could have reached as high as 2,000 degrees. 
They would have been able to barely even breathe because all the oxygen would have been sucked out of the air. But still, in sheer desperation, they are sprinting to get to the top of that mountain and over the other side before the fire reaches them. That's when Dodge stops and he turns around and looks at the fire and he realizes they're not going to make it. So he guesses they have about 30 seconds before that fire reaches them. And so that's when he does the unthinkable. He stops running and he drops down. He starts a fire. He starts his own fire. And in no time, that fire lights and it takes off. And so he immediately, he, he turns to his other men who are behind him and he begs them, he begs and pleads with them to follow him into that fire. And one by one, 13 men look at him with just astonishment and say, there's no way. And they keep running right past him, trying to make it up the mountain. Everyone who tried to run from the fire that day died. Only Dodge survived because he realized something that saved his life. He realized a fire can't burn twice. So he saved himself by throwing himself where the fire had already burned. Men and women, that is propitiation. What Jesus did was receive the full fire of God's wrath. And that means it will not burn twice. Your choice today is whether you'll keep running up that mountain, trying to make it on your own, continue the struggle, hoping you have enough, or you can go where the fire has already burned. You can throw yourself on him in utter dependence. And when you do, Paul says here, your struggle for righteousness, it's over. The very righteousness of God is given to you as a gift. So if you're here this morning, you've, you've never received the righteousness of God. You only know trying by your own efforts. I want you to know, simply by faith, by surrender, this morning, that righteousness can be yours. And we'd love to talk to you about that. For all of us here who have received that gift of, gift of righteousness, my, righteousness, my message to you to me, is the same as Paul's in Galatians. Continue the same way you started. Do not walk out those doors, start trying to earn what you never could and you never did. Every day of your life, go where the fire has already burned. You know, I think God knew how forgetful I would be, and how forgetful we all would be, and how every day of our life we need to be reminded of this gospel. So that's why he gave us the word supper. Help us remember, to give us a picture, to remind us over and over and over that it's only by His body and by His blood that we are saved. But that's how we're going to close the service this morning, is by taking the Lord's Supper together. And so I'm going to invite Adam McMahon to come on up and lead us. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.